0: Oh yes. Hello, humans of podcast land. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is Buster Benson and his most recent book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement is kind of the beginning of a little lineage, I think, of books about how we have uh, productive conversations with each other. Uh, I know that Scott Adams' most recent Loser Think book is kind kind of similar, just helping people to figure out how their minds work and, and how to communicate with other people and how to remove their biases and and stuff like that. It's a really interesting topic. Um, and I think that a lot of this desire for people to have better conversations stems from the fact that we don't indulge ourselves in these deep, meaningful chats. If I was to give you a single piece of advice, it would be to try and sit down with a friend for 30 minutes to an hour at least once per week, and just have a discussion. Leave your phone outside of the room and just talk about anything, anything which is meaningful to you or interesting to them. Learn to ask questions, and hopefully the framework that Buster gives us today will help you to mediate things that you don't agree on, and also to find some common ground with new things that you do. So yeah, if you enjoy it, send it to a friend who can't argue for shit. Please welcome Buster Benson. ready to go? Ready. Lovely. Well, what if I'm not ready? Maybe we should have an argument about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: sure, we can. We, we can indeed. And we're going to today, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Buster Benson. Buster, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: As you might have heard, we've been practicing our arguments, ready for you to tune in today, but we are talking about the art of productive disagreement today.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes.
0: <laughs> or are we? A nice easy or maybe topic. we talk about something else. Maybe I argue with you and we talk about something else.
1: I'm open for whatever you got. You know, I love having a good disagreement. Uh, part of the, re- you know, the most interesting part of research for this book was basically approaching disagreements in all parts of my lives. And, you know, I can tell you that that has led to, you know, all kinds of just like weird side effects of its own. So um, I like going down those rabbit holes and, and seeing where they end up. But yeah, so if you have any like pressing, like, you're like why is this thing so hard to talk about in public? We can talk about that. Um, but yeah, the uh, I'm happy also to also just like give a quick summary of the book too, if that's helpful.
0: Amazing. Yeah, I think I've got uh, I've had some difficult discussions recently with people. Not difficult as in we were at odds, but more um, why is it difficult for us to have this discussion when it's yeah. not in as much of a collaborative environment? So uh, your new book, Why Are we Yelling, why did you write it, and what's it about?
1: Yes. Okay. So I wrote it because I really needed to read this book. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people that go out and you know write the book that you know they about what they know. Um, my my career has been in product development and engineering and entrepreneurship and you know I was at Amazon and Twitter and Slack and held a couple of my own startups, ran a bar for a while, I just all kinds of random things. Um, and so. I have a pretty personal relationship to arguing and disagreement that I'm, you know, I think everybody has in their own way. Um, but it has been my job for a long time to facilitate sort of diverse groups of people that have different incentives, different goals, different skill levels, and helping them all come together and get something done. Um, so that's sort of, you know, I've been interested in it for a long time in a professional sense. Um, and you know, I think part of what it came out of that was, uh, an acknowledgement that we're biased. We have blind spots. We don't see everything. We oftentimes fight for being right instead of fighting for, you know, the truth. Um, and we don't really have, you know, as our in an argument, when our heart rate starts to spike and our blood pressure starts to, you know, go up, our capacity to reason goes down. Our our interest in collaboration goes down. All these things. So basically, it's like here's the time when you need all these skills, and we're gonna just remove them all from you, uh, very conveniently. And turn you back into like the fight or flight, you know, animal that you you were billions of years ago or whatever. Um, So my my goal in writing this book was to take all of the knowledge in the world from all the experts, because there are so many books about this, about negotiation, about persuasion, about rationality, about using um you know there's just like there's a lot of stuff out there and it's all very good it's all very some of it's really dense and some of some of it's really useful but it's really hard to understand how that applies to our regular lives and how do we use that at the dinner table how do we use that in a one on one how do we use that when we're fighting with our spouse or or you know a partner how do we use that when we're you know just frustrated and angry and we have we're tired and you know when everything seems to be falling apart all these things that like seem to compromise us and um And so I just decided to take a deep dive, immerse myself in all that stuff and try to synthesize it because that's what I love to do. I like to synthesize things and make it practical. So that was the hope.
0: I think that that's one of the most interesting things that we can do, especially as we get older and we can draw from multiple different bodies of knowledge, different subject areas. Intellectual hero of mine, Naval Ravikant, talks about the fact that he thinks joining these things is one of the greatest pleasures that there is in life. And I have to say Mm -hmm. that the same is true for me. Interestingly, I spoke to Professor Paul Bloom from the University of mm. Yale um, the other day, and he recently wrote a book called uh, Against Empathy The Case for mm. Rational Compassion. Um, right. okay. And it, it yep. sounds like you're pushing towards rationality here. How unbiased can we make ourselves? How appropriate can we make our responses?
1: Not, not necessarily. So I wouldn't, I'm not pro rationality or against it. I think that. They're they are disciplines. You know, rationality is a discipline. Empathy is a discipline. Um, persuasion is a discipline. Um, we need to find the thing that's actually the most practical for us to use. Um, and I think that any of these disciplines, when taken to an extreme and applied, you know, they are very useful in a very constrained sort of sphere of um Sort of debate right like if, if you want to be apply science to all of your arguments you can do that But you need a laboratory you need research grants um, If you want to apply empathy to all of your disagreements You really need to be super healthy and emotionally like sort of thriving in a way that you could, you could actually spend all this stuff mm-hmm. um, and If you want to use rationality you need to be talking to someone that also You know wants to play by that rule, mm-hmm. right? You can't take rationality to a basketball court and play <laughs> you know, play play basketball you have to take it to a rationalist, and and then you're sparring. But so I'm not like for or against them. I think there's a time and a place and a context for all these things, um, but there is also this huge context of our everyday lives that you know where these things don't necessarily work.
0: I understand. So we're talking about disagreement and the art of productive disagreement specifically. At some point, did you did you define what you consider to be an argument or a disagreement?
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I have a you know an official definition, which is. A disagreement is basically a difference between two perspectives that you find unacceptable. So it could be, I think A is better than B, you think B is better than A. If we're both cool with that, then no disagreement. If one of us thinks, hey, I don't think it's it's okay for you to think that A is better than B, because B is definitely better than A, um, then we have disagreement. <laughs> um, so it's really the unacceptable part. It's like, what is it that that's what sparks us into the you know the need to prove someone right or the need to actually con- converse with them about this
0: mm, it comes from a good place i think sometimes mm-hmm. it's that yeah. we want we think you person a would benefit from my view person b if you had my view your world would be better and my world would be better therefore i should get you to do it
1: yeah yeah there's there's a selfish aspect to it and there's a selfless aspect to it you know this is how we learn about the world right we have to go out and talk to people that know things we don't know And we have to take their knowledge and link it up to what we do know. And that's inevitably going to cause differences of perspective. That's what we want. We want to go talk to people that know things we don't know. Um, The process of integrating differences is a skill that we have not um, been taught very well. We haven't been taught ways. to. we, we, We tend more to the anxiety we feel about like, okay, well, I've got this B is better than A thing in my head. I'm not ready to change that yet. That makes me uncomfortable. How can I mash their version of things into my head in a way that I can keep that, mm-hmm. which oftentimes requires you to say, well, a this person thinks A is better than B, um, but they're wrong. And so I'm gonna put that, that's how I'm gonna like link it up. I'm gonna put it into like, there are some people out there that are wrong, and then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it, now it's co- coherent, um, versus trying to actually decide like which one is the best. Um, or or is there a possibility that they're both, you know, it's okay for you to think that and me to think this, and that's totally fine.
0: I understand. So do you have a, a framework that people can follow that they can look at? Where, where do we start with the book?
1: Yes, yes, yes. So um, this book is framed around eight things to try and meant to be things that, you know, are each in their own, um, a big practice, a, a big way to, and it pulls together lots of experts and a lot of research and my own personal experiences and um, all that into something that's like, "Hey, try this." And those eight things are, um, I mean, you know, we don't have to cover them all, but they are. They're thing. The first one is watching how anxiety sparks in your head. So, like, when you enter a disagreement, um, try to notice what sparks that anxiety, so that you can work backwards and think, "Okay, well, what was threatened? What was my my value or my identity or my feeling or what felt threatened?" And then you can use that to um, ask that person, like, "Did you mean to threaten this?" Or did you? Were you saying that for some other reason? Um, because most disagreements are oftentimes mistaken threats. They're not actually trying to threaten you. They're actually just ranting about something, or they're just, you know, trying to say something, but they're saying it in a very sloppy way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one, mm-hmm. um, and I have like tips around how to do that with like disagreement journaling and and sort of private journaling and that kind of thing. Number two is to talk to your internal voices. So a lot of us think with our, you know, with voices in our head. And we, we, we find ourselves sometimes like when we're when our blood pressure is up, we get angry and we tell people to shut up and we just try to stop the argument. And when we're with uh, friends or we're at work, we're trying to be more professional. We use like logic. We're like, OK, well, what's the evidence for this and how would you prove that? And let's see what happens. Um, and there's another one that when those two things don't work um, is like, oh, I just I'm going to opt out. I'm going to avoid this conversation because there's no point in me talking to you. You're not going to listen to my reason. I don't want to be overbearing and or you're being overbearing to me. I'm just going to escape. I'm going to avoid everything. Um, and I call that the voice of avoidance, which is the one that um, tends to have creeped into our lives the most. Turns out like there's so much in our lives where we just decide you know, to avoid the problem. Um, for some reason or another sometimes it's because you want to keep the peace sometimes it's because it's you think it's useless and that's where the frustration comes in which is like we don't, we would want to be effective here and we're choosing not to that sort of annoys us mm.
0: um,
1: and so really giving names to these voices and and starting to think about which ones talk up when and when are they most applicable is one of those chapters um, chapter three is to develop honest bias so um, really thinking about cognitive bias and how you Can both see it in yourself and um, learn to see it, see see how it creates um, problems around you, and how to address the problems without having to necessarily diagnose everyone as biased, Um, because that's sort of what tends to happen is like we point, we go around trying to say you're biased for this reason and you're biased for this reason. Meanwhile, the things are just getting worse and worse. I I I advocate for just like focus on the effects of bias and try to fix the damage that's being caused because that's something that's tangible it's you know it's right in front of you it's also the thing that's hurting the people um and then over time you can sort of work backwards into you know um, what caused this how do we prevent it from happening in the first place but um so those are three that we start the book with and then There's five more, but I won't go into them because I've been talking a long time. (laughs) No, hey, I'm I'm absolutely
0: I'm absolutely loving it. I'm sure that the listeners will be as well. I think it'd be once we've had a little chat about those. I think we we definitely go through the remaining chapters because I don't want to I don't want to leave that open loop. Um, one of the one of the interesting things you said there, I I certainly know that for myself as someone who likes to think about things in a more of a cerebral way. Um, and you can sometimes break down a disagreement. Um, very cerebrally, you know, just go back through thinking fast and slow and start just picking up Daniel Kahneman quotes and studies, (laughs) throwing them at someone going like, no, like self-serving bias, uh, Mm -hmm. argument from authority. Like you just, (laughs) you know what I mean? And it's like, well, hang on a second. Like you've totally bypassed the actual purpose of using biases uh, and working (laughs) out where logical fallacies come from, which is to use them to progress the argument forward, not to break the fourth wall of the argument and, Turn it into this weird sort of dick measuring competition about right. who knows the most biases.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that's the danger I would try to avoid. And you know, f- full disclosure, like that's how that's where I started too. You know, as a PM at Twitter, we were always we were obsessed with the list of biases, and we would always try to like pick them out in other people's arguments and it was a game. What's a um, what's
0: PM? Sorry.
1: Oh, a product manager. Okay. So I was what's, I was a product...
0: Briefly, what does that mean?
1: Sorry. <laughs> so. Um, you know, the teams, the, the, it was at at Twitter at the time, um, you have engineers, you have designers, you have a marketer, um, the, the product manager sort of works with them all and like comes up with the strategy, Uh, um, tries to identify which things are launch blockers, which things are are bugs that need to be fixed first, whether or not the quality is high enough. Um, you also have to wrangle with like the execs and other teams to figure out, you know, how to get your resources, how do you uh, prioritize your projects and that kind of thing. So it's half of it's like, you know managing your team and sort of figuring out like how do we all work together effectively and half of it is sort of managing your relationship to the rest of the company
0: that must be a very good breeding ground to develop negotiating skills uh, finding middle ground compromise uh, ensuring that different stakeholders uh, are satisfied etc etc
1: yeah 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 it's definitely that's um, where I realized I, w- I had particular skills in there and also that I had a long way to go uh, early on and not everyone liked that role. So it was something that I was really drawn to It was like, this is a meaty challenge. I'm never going to like master this uh, to the extent that I get bored. Right. Mm. So and was, um, was it
0: a similar role at Slack as well?
1: Slack yeah, as well. Yep. And I had that at, tw- at Amazon and uh, most recently at Patreon. So it's, it's a role that is pretty common here in the Bay Area. Um, mm-hmm. and it, but it's also ambiguous. You go to every single company and it's slightly different. It's always yep. a, a function of the culture and how that, that company works.
0: That's a, a very interesting sample of some huge, quickly growing companies for you to have developed these skills in.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a crucible of... <laughs> like excitement and torture and you know, all of fire. All that, between. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was at Amazon in 98 when it was just like books and music uh, tabs were up and like, the video tab was going to come up soon and auctions was going to come up. Um, and that was right out of college. I remember being like, wow, this is so I'm, I feel like I'm in the middle of some like weird, weird, wild hurricane that's like, happening. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, got, I feel really lucky with being in the right place at the right time and a lot of in a lot of ways, so. It
0: really really sounds like you have been. So, you know, the listeners will know, but you won't, Uh, I'm a club promoter. So my job uh, involves me mediating between uh, the venue owner, which we're not, Um, our staff, there's about 500 of them that work for us, 14 of them are the managers, and then there's teams below them. Uh, The customers, the police, the council, licensing authority, uh, marketing, you know, and we, we cross all, all different sectors of the business. So me and my business partner will do accounting. We'll do projections. We'll do the marketing. We'll do the copy. We'll do the HR. We'll do the hiring and firing. We'll do literally everything. So you know, juggling mm-hmm. juggling these these particular skills um, is something that I enjoy. I like I like the challenge. Which yeah. you know, yeah. given your track record of companies that you've been at as well, I think that you must have that too. Um, yeah. so we've Very had, similar. Yeah. we've had the, the first, the first three. There was one, uh, I think it was number two that you mentioned about where you're talking to your internal voices, uh, mm-hmm, checking mm-hmm. yourself on your internal voices. Mm-hmm. So there's an Eckhart Tolle quote, um, from the power of now where he talks about conceding that, uh, conceding that your point is wrong in an argument is tantamount to the ego's destruction. <laughs> and i often think about that when i'm having a discussion with someone and the listeners at home will know this as well you're having a discussion with someone and you think right this is irrefutable proof that what you're saying is wrong and they don't change their mind but like, no hang on a second like i've just i've literally i've given you it it's there there's the there's the thing <laughs> and rather than that they dig their heels in further and they double down right. on that right, position right, right. is that the right. sort of thing that you that you discovered in that
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, you know, it's considered like backfire effect or the boomerang effect where, um, you know, we don't in a particular context, if the context is a battle or a tug of war, or, you know, you're leaning back you're like, and if someone pulls on their side of the rope, you don't, you don't be, you don't like, Oh, cool. Let's go over there. You're like, no, I'm going to pull on my side of the rope harder. <laughs> uh, and that's just the game, right? That's the game you're playing in that context. It's, um, you know, it comes from fight or flight. It comes from our survival instinct to be like, Hey, if I'm losing, that doesn't mean I surrender. That means I fight harder. Um, And you know, psychologically, it doesn't make sense. um, And if you just look at it from like, oh, you know, why am I not hearing the information and uh, updating my mental model about reality, um, and instead choosing to fight back? Because oftentimes your survival is at stake. At least historically, you know, evolutionarily, you know, anyone who's
0: been in a really heated argument knows that. That feeling when it's right. you really get going and you almost you're no longer listening. It's a game of tennis, it's a verbal mm-hmm. game of tennis. You wait for that person to finish speaking, or sometimes you don't, and you just single minded, you got the blinkers on like a horse in the race, and you, you're just going for it.
1: Yep, yep, yep. And we're all, yeah, it's 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 like really hardwired in our brains. We were really, uh, we benefited a lot from it over time, um, because there's so many arguments that can't be. Resolved with reason, you know, if, if something is like hey, you know I want to have my house right here on this hill and you want it too, but I'm bigger I have worse my you know, I have more st- swords and soldiers on my side, so I gotta have my house here um, Or you know, like, I want these goats. These are my goats, <laughs> you know <laughs> You don't you don't resort to property rights. You don't take it to the court of law. You just settle it right there mm. um, and so this is how we settle most of the things like if you look at a two-year-old and that has their favorite toy they don't you know reason about why they should keep the toy they just yank it and start screaming um these are they work (laughs) in in a pre-verbal um sense even even a pre-cognitive sense they work Mm. um so they're they're deeply down there but you know what what gets us into that battle mode is interesting because we don't have to operate in that battle mode all the time we don't and most of the time we're in that mode we're not actually fighting for our survival. We're fighting for something stupid <laughs> or something very abstract. Um, and even if we're wrong, we're not going to die. We're not going to be kicked out. We're not going to you know, starve in the, in the cold. You know, So um, we should look at that. That's why i start with like, where does anxiety spark? And sort of listen to the internal voices because that's the point where there's this crossroads. You can be like, Am I going to go down? Am I going to turn on my battle mode? Or am I going to turn on my friend mode? Um, or am I going to turn on some other mode? Um, and you don't have to go into that mode.
0: So it's there, a, there's a choice at the beginning. I'm going to guess that turning on or not the anxiety mode forms the foundation for the other elements and the, the chapters. Is that kind of right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think I try to spend time, um, helping build the instincts and the practices to avoid the mode altogether, because most of the time you don't need it if you're, if your health or your safety is in danger, yes. Uh, resort to the voice of power and to be like I just yank it and try to hold on to it yeah. um, Whatever it is, but you know most of the time we're arguing with each other right now We're not we don't need to do that. We, we actually benefit from learning um, Something new we'd actually benefit from building a relationship we would actually benefit from enjoying the conversation and building new connections So all these other things that we could get out of a conversation um, can be productive and can make it productive in a way that's way more rich and way more enjoyable, way more fulfilling than who's right. Um, So there's a a bunch of that around, like what are the other fruits of disagreement that we can focus on that um, it turns out are like way more interesting and fun.
0: Yeah, the conversation I had with uh, Professor Paul Bloom from the University of Yale, we finished talking about why we think that uh, the podcasting platform is – so enjoyed and seen such growth at the moment. And it's a cliche to say it's the fastest growing platform on, on earth after <laughs> Twitch TV. And you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. But <clears throat> is that just because of AirPods or because Joe Rogan's a boss or whatever, whatever. Um, but I think one of the main things is that it's, it's one of the few places where you can have two plus two equaling five with regards to a conversation. You know, I mm-hmm. don't want the best podcasters, some, some bad podcasters do this, but I don't want to come into this conversation with you i don't have an agenda for me to come out looking like the cooler guy right and you know that's not your agenda yeah (laughs) what we want what we i mean you know i think you're pretty cool as it is living in the bay area so i'm in northeast of england i'm in winterfell um (laughs) and but what we're trying to do is we're trying to have a conversation it's one of the few places the last bastion of where conversations aim to make two plus two equaling five where it's Mm -hmm. like, you you know some stuff, and I might know some stuff, and then together we we create, and we're like, oh, wow, both of us have come to a new conclusion. And the weird thing about it that I think is important is that we know that we're being held to account by an audience that's going to be rigorous at checking us on our bullshit. Because Mm -hmm. if it was just a conversation between the two of us, you might be able to lie more or bend the truth or I might be able to, I could tell you that I was like an ex professional football player or whatever, whatever. <laughs> but I can't do that because I know that someone out there is going to go, that's, that's bullshit. You can't say that. Yeah. So yeah, you're actually yeah, held yeah. to this incredibly high level of intellectual rigor oh. and honesty and dignity and virtue and integrity and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it is I, you know, the, I suppose what's, what are your thoughts on these sorts of long conversations and stuff like that as being a breeding ground for productive disagreement?
1: Absolutely. In fact, you know, even through my own experience, I've, I've been on a few podcasts now, and every single podcast host I, I meet um, is so like intuitively understands these points um, because you're on a you know daily or weekly you know cadence doing them right, and you so you know you know that you know. Asking good questions is important. You know that you know enticing people to sort of fill in their own arguments for something, and show that share their own perspective and share their story is important to the conversation. And you have the time and the context and the circumstances to allow space. If you don't, you're not looking for the sound bites. You're not looking for the zingers necessarily. So as far as I'm concerned, like yeah, the, the book could have just been like be a podcast host and, <laughs> and be fun. <laughs> We all just need our own podcasts, and we all just need to be on more podcasts because everything about it, I agree, is just like it's conducive to longer. Maybe this is why they're happening right now when we need this kind of thing, and why they're you know growing so fast is because this is this is the antidote to you know the the breaking news and the headlines and the you know the rants and all that kind of hot takes and all that stuff. So
0: yeah, it is. I you know it's one of those things that I'm hearing from so many different angles at the moment. That long form conversation is something which is lacking. We need to allow people time to vo- think out loud and voice their thoughts with nuance and subtlety and error without jumping on them and saying it's this and saying it's that. And, you know, I mean, we, I asked, um, Paul Bloom essentially, why is it unmoral to be racist the other day? Like that's a very difficult question to ask someone <laughs> without them going like, looking at you like you're a Holocaust denier or something. I was like, no, no, no. Like, I really, I'm I'm fascinated. What is the evolution? And he gives you (laughs) you time. Do you know what I mean? He gives you time to go through it. And he questions himself and the audience get taken on that journey. So, yeah, you know, everyone that's listening, I've said it a million times. I think that it is a good uh, tool to use to sit down with someone that you know well, for about half an hour, once a week, put your phones outside of the room and just talk about anything. Talk about something you see in the news, don't have anything else on, and just have a conversation. Because for me, I get so fired up knowing that I get to speak to someone like yourself or Aubrey Marcus or James Clear, or whoever it might be.
1: Right, yeah, yeah.
0: And if you don't have that outlet, you don't realize how much you're missing it.
1: Yeah, and I'm... I'm being swayed. I was originally for this book and to make a podcast and it seemed like so much work and so hard. And I, and I know that it is a lot of work and it's very hard, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I see the benefits in, in like just the, um, the people that are drawn to it and do the work. You know, you're all very open-minded, uh, gracious. You can see both sides. You're oftentimes like not polarized extremely on one side or the other. You can, you have a perspective that's large enough to, to hold, you know, invite guests that disagree and, you know, uh, have, have conversations that are difficult, like all these things are exactly what um, you know is said in the book. And we we may not all be able to be podcast hosts, but we are all people that have dinner with people, and we're all people that go on walks with each other. We're all people that have conversations and write letters and all these other things that we can do. So, yeah, I think it's great, um, and I'm definitely you know reconsidering my my choice to not have one. <laughs>
0: good, good. Well, I would I definitely you'd have a subscriber at least. You'd have one. So we've got nice. we got with three chapters in. What are we yeah. on to next? So number four. What are we what's what are we working on?
1: So number four is to speak for yourself, and this is sort of we can always bring this back um, to the other ones too. Each one sort of builds on the on the past ones. But speaking for yourself, I found especially online, um, is an easy guardrail to help keep tr- conversations on track. When you start speaking for other people or imagining what you know, how often do you say like or do pe- you hear people say, um, "I can't." understand why you would believe this or why you would do that well you must be an idiot or you must be a racist or you must be a terrible person mm. um, there was a question There was a question like I, I don't understand something but you don't ask it right mm. you all you do is you take your your uncharitable stereotype of that person and you plant it into their head and you say okay well you must have this terrible projection that I have and therefore I can judge you and understand I, I think I understand you but I really only understand my stereotype and so if you ask, ask people to speak only for themselves and they are trying to talk about something that they can't talk about from their own perspective, you're forced to go find someone that can go and do that for you. Um, and so find the person that can speak for themselves about the thing you want to understand. Um, and so use that person to give you information instead of your own imagination to do that. And yeah, so that leads into the next one, which is sort of paired with it, which is like asking questions that spark um, surprising answers so once you have that person there like how do you you don't just say like you know are you a terrible person you, you know speak for yourself try to convince me that you're not a terrible person those are terrible questions <laughs> um, you can ask questions that are much more open and be like you know you no know, how did you form this belief do you even have this belief how would you how would you articulate your position to me um, how are you misunderstood by people like me well, you know what how, how have your beliefs been useful in your life who, who do you look up to that has this quality and just try to like start try to see the world through their words. And again, you know, using the fact that they come from a different life as a source of information and have curiosity about it. So ask really big, open questions. Wow, um, yeah.
0: That, that little batch of questions that you've suggested there would elicit, you know, hundreds of hours of interesting conversations between people.
1: Yeah. And even people that you hate. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that I disagree with that I think, you know, I, w- I want to know. In fact, the people that you agree with more likely have similar motivations to you because you've already selected for one thing that's in common between the two of you. Whereas if you don't right. even have that thing in common, you're like, oh wow, you must have a really different worldview.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really quick to see that. You know, to see that if you ask the right question, you're like, oh yeah. My, you know, I grew up here with these circumstances, with these, you know, this environment. Um, and you're like, oh, wow. Tell me more, because like, I don't know anything about that. Right. Mm.
0: So I'm coaching uh, a company out in Germany. And one of the particular guys that I'm working with at the moment, he was asking about how to be a better conversationalist. He's quite forthcoming. Um, he's got a lot, a lot to say and he's clever and he's quick. Um, but he, he knows that he grates on people. He knows that he can come across a little bit abrasive and he asked me for some sort of heuristic or rule to use. And I was like, I want you to ask one question for every statement that you make when you have a conversation with one of the guys in your office. Like, Mm. so, and even you can put what you want them to do into your question. So you can say, okay, what do you think is a solution to this? Or how would you go about doing this? Or can you tell me why you think that? You know, and if you realize that, it, it not only does it help you to understand their point of view, and if you can ensure that you're letting go of your ego and that you haven't got your battle mode on and that you're not pulling too hard and do the things that we've discussed beforehand, mm-hmm. and you're you're prepared to be sort of moved by the tide of the conversation. You can just yeah. sway from left to right, however it goes, you again you two plus two equals five in that conversation.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's a it's a skill and and again, I don't think people have been intentionally practicing this or being taught this skill, but the actual skill is not, you, know, you don't have to go and get your PhD in asking questions. Um, you can actually just put, you know, write down five questions, put it in your pocket. And next time you go out, you know, and talk to someone, just like review it really quickly before you go in and be like, okay, I'm going to ask those questions <laughs> and then ask them <laughs> and then see where it goes. And it's self-reinforcing because once you start doing that, you realize how enjoyable it is to hear people talk about something that you weren't expecting them to talk about. Um and to hear someone's own words to to, to describe something, um, and so I like this one because it is like one of the first, most like obvious reinforcing loops where mm. you get an instant gratification from a good yeah. question.
0: You really do, yeah. I think. Certainly, before doing this podcast, I'm an I'm an only child, and that meant that I had a very, very single-minded, solitary, selfish worldview, which I probably still do. And my, my friends, my friends would probably accuse me of still having that. But it's, it's a lot better since doing the podcast because I have a genuine curiosity of what other people say, and I can't, I can no longer turn that off. Um, so someone will get kicked out at the front of one of our club nights and I'll be stood on the door and this person will be shouting and screaming about why the door staff have kicked them out. And I'll be asking them like, Oh, so what would like tell me about what you do for work? And like, fuck off mate! I want to get back in. Like, I'm very interested in your backstory, please. Yeah, um, but, <clears throat> yeah the, That'd be a the, good
1: podcast series right there.
0: Oh God. Standing on the front door. <laughs> Honestly, if I had one of those body cams on that the police wear, it would be, it'd be savage. We had Halloween last night in Newcastle and, like wait, there's nothing better than seeing a guy dressed up as a ghostbuster fight a guy dressed up as a power ranger and the door staff try to split <laughs> them up. And me being like, excuse me, gentlemen, can you tell me about where okay. the moral virtue that's starting this uh, situation has come from, please? <laughs> Chris, go back, go back You're to you. different
1: go, universes. I mean, yeah. how are they going to resolve anything? <laughs> yeah, I no,
0: They are from different universes. That's really correct. <laughs> um, but yeah, the asking questions thing, super easy heuristic. Yeah. Um, Moving on, number six.
1: What we got? Okay, so number six is building arguments together. Um, So once, so this is another thing that I like to practice. And you know, I think it's you have to get good at the questions first. But um, building arguments together is basically like let's just put aside my position for a while and let's really work on making your argument or your side of the position as strong as possible. And I can help you by both seeing by seeing it from the outside as well, and you can help from seeing it from the inside. We can look for the answers to my questions together. Um, We can look for, I can look at the evidence that you have and sort of help you explain it in language that I can hear better. Um, All these things where you're now, um, rather than trying to tear apart their argument, you're trying to build it up because in an ideal world, a disagreement would be something that you can learn from and you can only learn from the best version of the argument. So that means you need to find the people that can best represent the argument and help them make it stronger and you know, and this is a collaborative exercise, and you could just do this with almost anything. There's a best argument for even the most wrong positions, mm-hmm. and you, know, mm-hmm. you can make the best argument for flat earth. You can make the best argument for yep. you know the world being on top of a stack of turtles. I mean, yep, but yep. Um, and by doing that, you're like suddenly you're you're back into your creative mode. You're back into your like, okay, well let's make this work, um, and you're doing it with somebody that has a lot to contribute because our enemies and our opponents actually. Are the best at spotting our own blind spots, and we're the best at spotting theirs. And if we're actually working together, there's a huge amount of benefit from using that knowledge of each other um, to make each other stronger. Um, ultimately, you might build up the argument. you are like, okay, well, I still don't believe the Earth is flat, but you know, I had a lot of fun doing that. You know, <laughs> and maybe they during the process they might be like, okay, well, I, and I had an experience where I talked to a, a globalist, and they, you know, they didn't try to, to hurt me or tell me I'm an idiot. Mm. Um, I open the door to them asking you questions about your argument or like how you got to your side. Cause that, you know, I gave you, you know, some of my time they might eventually want to give it back.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm thinking of two examples here, which you might be familiar with both. I think it is Charlie Munger who says that he refuses to have a position on anything unless he can state the other sides <laughs> better than they can. Right. Right. And exactly. That, that's an amazing heuristic. And then you might've seen the, uh, pangburn philosophy discussion between jordan peterson and sam harris and mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. started they uh, tried
1: to do this
0: <laughs> they, they did a st- they did what's called steel manning is that right yeah, steel, yeah, manning. steel manning can mm-hmm. you explain what steel manning an argument is
1: steel manning is 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 a version of this which is like i'm going to try to articulate the you know the best case of mm-hmm. this argument it doesn't necessarily require the other person to be involved, which I think is a, a crucial part of it because they actually have a lot more of the information than you do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's basically saying, "Hey, if I don't think that um, it's moral to, um, you know, not vaccinate your kids, um, I could create the steel man argument of that of the other person's side mm-hmm. by trying to use evidence in as good a faith, you know, notion as possible. So, like, imagine someone like this." And this and this and in that case, um, you know, I can see why, you know, they don't have time to go give their kids vaccinations and that's why they don't do it. Or they live in Nigeria. There's no access to clinics, you know, whatever it happens to be, but taking everything on as good of faith as possible. Mm. Um, sometimes it's also called the principle of charity, um, of just, you know, helping them. I think the crucial thing that they all sort of triangulate on is that we're usually in the mode of trying to tear people's arguments down and that, um, makes us not see the strengths versus when you steal men you, you sort of do the opposite you look for the strengths and you look to make them stronger and you look to you know try to imagine because that's when we're arguing on behalf of ourselves that's what we're doing we're imagining it in this best light we're not imagining its flaws um so it helps you with that empathy a bit
0: yeah yeah i agree and again to come back to the the asking questions part a lot of the guys that work for us you can imagine there's a million micro decisions that need to get made about club nights. Who's working this week? What are the hostess outfits? Should we do confetti or should we do bubbles or should we do whatever? And everyone has a different point of view. And a lot of the time I've noticed that the guys that work, they're maybe uh, 18, 19 up to 21, 22. And a lot of the guys like to make statements about things as as fact, but then they're never actually prepared to look at what the other side is saying and understand right. that. Um, right. And then another thing, I wonder whether you've come across this, you probably will have done. People are a lot more prepared in a disagreement to say why another thing is wrong than to offer a solution.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is always the case. I, I call this like arguing at the gate. Um, so, for, I mean, take any issue, we're often just trying to point out the flaws of the other side. We're not talking about. Um, what, our, what we would do if we were allowed to do with a thing that we're trying to do, right? Like, um, there's an example today of like, you know, with the Facebook ad policy. I don't know if you follow that or not, but they're trying to say like, you know, Facebook should ban political ads that are blatantly lying about stuff. Um, and, you know, there's a good case for it. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, heat around this right now. But no one's talking about what that policy should be. Like, what it, how would we censor political ads in a productive way? Um, there are plenty of countries that do, um, and some of them are tyrannical countries. <laughs> so we don't we know that it's not just enough to censor ads, but we also have to create a good policy. Um, and that's so you don't you can leave the gates. Like say imagine that we resolve this disagreement somehow. What would we do with that victory? What would we how would we actually um, be? Um, how would we execute on the on the answer? Um, and it's, it's it's surprising how little we actually think about that.
0: I think that's that's certainly something that I see. Arguing at the gate, is that what you called it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. So arguing at the gate, It's that's just all that Twitter is to me. Um, yeah. I don't know whether it's a, a result of the character limit that a lot of the time you are restricted to just put in, like, this is my point, this is the hardest-hitting bit of it, which is usually a criticism of your point. Um, Mm-hmm. But yeah, we default we default to that, don't we? Because recently, uh, Twitter said that they're banning all political ads. Is this is this a second order effect? This Facebook pressure a second order effect? Do you think of the Twitter thing?
1: I think they're both sort of swirling in that same same discussion. Uh, Facebook more so because they're much bigger. But yeah, Twitter and you know LinkedIn and Pinterest also recently came out saying that you know even before Twitter that they are going to not have any political ads. Um, and it's applauded by a lot of the critics of Facebook, um, but it also opens up a whole other question of like, okay, well, how will you draw the line? Um, Where do between... you define a
0: political ad? Yeah. What, if Donald, <laughs> yeah, what if Donald Trump's undergone a body transformation and he wants to sell you his, his like six-week beach body program or something? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. So like now like we're moving the we're moving into another gate. You know, we're we're now at like, what counts as an issue, a political issue, and can I advertise about it? Um, and it's going to be just as heated. It's a little bit. More nuanced, which I think is good, um, but it's still going to be a hard one, I think.
0: Yeah, this—the fact that people are so prepared, and it, you know, I am as well. I, I, you know, there's inflammatory stuff that I see online, and I get a visceral reaction, and I want to reply or say that you're stupid or whatever. But. A lot of things, it's, everything is so complex, everything's so, so difficult. The real world's incredibly messy, incredibly chaotic, and it's increasingly we're just not having very good conversations about things. It doesn't, it doesn't really seem on the whole to be getting that much better. I'm aware that I live in this wonderful podcast utopia where it's just me and some person that I've had a bit of a chat with over email chatting about something that, that fascinates us both. For the vast majority of people it's not that especially for the guys at the top of the tree you know like if you're someone who's real real like typical normal mainstream media you got your 30 second snippet sat on a panel with like right. five of the people yeah. who all disagree with you
1: yeah yeah it's it's hard I mean we weren't ever in this situation before where we had a giant audience and um N- no context <laughs> for who we are, what, we, what group we're in, all that kind of thing. So I think it's really, it's sort of, you know, the, we're, we're in this learning phase of a new technology, mm-hmm. a new environment, and we're making all kinds of mistakes. We don't have the skills, um, but it is an opportunity to step back and, and first, you know, have a bit of sympathy for everyone that's sort of flailing and failing in this context because none of us are good at it. Um, and give people a chance to develop as people and to learn from mistakes and um, to learn from each other um, and I, I think you know having one-on-one conversations is, is a lot easier than having one to a million person conversations um, and so we can build that skill up from smaller smaller circles and so smaller situations and build our confidence and Know, create new cultural norms about how to disagree. I, I think that's just part of the process we need to go through as a culture. It's like let's learn these skills, starting from the very basics. Um, and uh, yeah. I, you know, it's we're it's still very early in our in our evolution on terms of like how do we exist on online as humans. Very much um, so. Have you
0: have you seen those political debates? I don't know if they have them in the states. I know they have them in the UK where the audience members have a button that tells them that uh, shows at the bottom of the screen I think it's called the worm so you can imagine there's lines for each of the candidates moving across the screen like that and then they go up and down as they mm. say different things and you can track and it's like, oh, red red said something really bad or blues made red silly so red looks worse and blah blah have you seen those things
1: I have, yeah, they do it for debates, yeah, okay. um, and I've seen them also done um, in, like, a town hall kind of situation, okay. uh, like, there's a, there's a, there's a methodology around it, I don't think it's great, because it turns, it turns conversation into a sport, right, it turns it into who could score points, who can, like, get the zingers, who can, you know, sort of make the other person look like a fool, um, it's definitely not about coming to a, an agreement or seeing things eye to eye. Um, very um, adversarial
0: isn't it doing it that way yeah
1: yeah yeah I mean I think the intentions are good I mean there's a bunch of you know and you know perhaps in a court of law or you know when you're talking about policy and very specific problem spaces it would work but I think at a national level political debates it's not good Um, it turns it into a a football game
0: yeah I think uh, again another Sam Harrisism I think he was talking about when he either does debates or just generally panel shows so this could be either adversarial or collaborative and he was saying that a lot of the time the person who comes out feeling like they were the best wasn't the person who was the most lucid or the person who articulated their argument the best or whatever it was it's if you get one huge raucous laugh from the crowd like if you got the biggest laugh you won right which is bizarre because, right. you know, Sam, Sam could be talking about some real contentious, serious topics like the the reality of Islam in the West or uh, the, the um, laws surrounding abortion or the, the concept of consciousness or whatever it is. And then someone right. makes a funny joke and it's like, oh, he won. You're like, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, because you're there to be entertained. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what you're there for. Then the laughs will definitely give you the points. Yeah. I mean, I call them zingers where yeah. there's a whole science, I think, to zingers where – you know you're not actually talking to that person you're just trying to make them look foolish you're mostly talking to your own side about like you know how can I be the best sort of soldier or the best you know um, flag bearer of my side and like say things in such a way that just you know create um, bewilderment or confusion in the other side um, or a tauntum or you know all these things where it's very social but tied back to war behavior again where mm. You know, the, the goal is definitely not to get along.
0: <laughs> yeah, so there's uh, Andrew Doyle uh, and Constantin Kissin, who are two uh, comedians, political comedians in the UK. Uh, I've spoken to them both recently, saw them at the Edinburgh Fringe, and both of them said the same thing about, I think they call it um, applaud comedy which is where the comedian doesn't necessarily say something funny they just say the thing that the audience agrees with the most and then they French, get these right, big right, right, like right. yes 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 <laughs> and you're like well, it yeah. wasn't even funny it wasn't it wasn't funny you just said something that you think right. like you can't say that anymore like that's a classic one you know like and it just oh well anyone who thinks that free speech is being attacked is like yeah <laughs> yeah of course
1: yeah. Or it's just like, who here is from New York? You know, it yeah. could be anything that's loyalty based about like, you know, what is it? What is it, How can my tribe be, be heard right now? Um, and that will get the applause. Right. So
0: Paul, Paul Bloom, the other day when I was talking to him, you may have heard of this particular experiment. So he said that you put people into a room and uh, you get them all to flip a coin. So like hundred people in a room, you get them to flip a coin, roughly 50 a heads, 50 a tails or whatever it might be. Um, and then you put them on opposite sides of the room, and you go to the tails people, and you're like, well, so what do you, what do you think of heads? And they're like, wow, well, they're a bit sort of stupid, aren't they? Like, they're just not as clever as us, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, you have been selected by the most arbitrary random chance, It literally the most arbitrary random chance that you can get, and we're still drawn towards being tribal.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's something emotionally rewarding about being part of a tribe. Like right? We want to belong. And the way that we, we we build status within a tribe is by, you know, um, being a good member of it, which means like sort of protecting the tribe, um, you know, projecting confidence, um, all these sort of safety re- increasing traits that um, signal that our tribe is going to be OK. Um, even if we were on two sides of a cliff in the winter and like, you know, who knows why the bridge broke, but, we, you know, we were on two different sides. We want our we want our side to survive the winter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's it makes sense if you just think about you know how many you know generations of our society have benefited from these preferences. Um, it's you know, if we ended up preferring like if like oh that other side probably doesn't have blankets. Let's go give them our blankets. Um, you know your your tribe's not going to survive.
0: Yeah, I suppose as well. This probably highlights where the difficulty with subtlety and nuance comes in as well. Because if you're part of X tribe, they want you to swallow the ideology wholesale. And any uh, give that you might not be singing from the same hymn sheet is actually, oh, well, maybe, uh, maybe Buster, maybe, maybe doesn't belong. Maybe he's not on our side. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's on the other side. And that's why, again, Paul was talking about, for instance, someone who's um very, very left leaning but has uh contrary views to do with abortion law, or someone who's very, very free speech but thinks that the internet needs to be policed more heavily or whatever it might be. Um right. and you know that again, it's hard for everyone to try and work out what their views are and we need productive disagreement for you to help me understand what I think and for me to help you understand what you think. So right, we've Absolutely. got two two chapters left. We've got seven and eight.
1: Yes. What are we doing? Yes. I want to say one more thing about that, though, because there is there is so much to say about this tribal stuff. It's really the underpinning of of all of our thoughts around disagreement, which is like um, if you even just look back at birds, you know, birds can't will kick members out of their flock if they're caught stealing. Um, You know, if if there are times when there's scarcity and one bird is eating all the food and never going out hunting, um, that bird will be, you know, exiled or ostracized from their tribe and so this sense of like you know in order to stay in the group you have to contribute and the worst punishment of any group is to be removed from the group like that's how we enforce all of our laws is like if you don't follow the rules we kick you out um and that works as long as you know in the past you know you kick someone out and they probably end up dying right because there's no other group that's going to take them in now we kick people out and they're like oh hey you know troublemaker come over to our trouble tribe um, we're going to help you become stronger, and we have all these other weapons. We can, you know, and we're building this new, you know, argument that's going to, and we're going to go attack them next next year or you know in, in ten years. Um, and so, the things that worked in our tribes the past of like you know follow the rules or else. Um, now in a world where everyone can find a community, no matter how um, sort of fringe you are, um, and those fringe groups can become stronger and, and more angry at you. Like the the, the feedback loop is now. Where where you kick out, it's going to come back, you know, ten times stronger, um, in the future. So it's just interesting dynamic that requires different instincts (laughs) for us to to manage. Um, So anyway, the last two are sort of relevant. So one of them, the second to last one, is to cultivate neutral spaces. So spaces, you know, sort of speaking of tribes, where you don't have to always signal loyalty to the group. You don't always have to repeat the ideas of your authority figure. You don't always have to um, even like you know be productive in that group. But like, so imagine a dinner table or, you know, something where like, anyone can bring an idea to the table. Um, it could be a bad idea. It could be a good idea. Those kinds of, that, that makes it neutral on terms of ideas where no one has to endorse the idea um, just but in order to talk about it. You can talk about it you know, and be critical of it, but it's welcome to the table. Um, and the second level of that is like, who's allowed in the room? You know, can can anyone arrive in the room and, and present their ideas? Can we allow you know, terrorists and Trump supporters to the room to tell us like what's wrong, what's going on with them. Um, the, the danger that we fear is that like if we invite them to the room, they're going to come in and uh, attack us. And, you know, we'll give them val- validation and all the stuff that, you know, that they came to do in bad faith. But um, a truly neutral space would allow ideas to flow in and out, good and bad ones, and it allow people to flow in and out, good and bad ones um, over time. And some places can can cultivate this and others it becomes obvious that that's not gonna ever happen um you know when when other interests like you know um revenue or you know uh costs are involved you have to make choices about who can be there and who can't and slowly over time that creates systemic problems where people are undervalued and unhappy and marginalized and you know whether it be you know um the poorest people in the country or the most disenfranchised people in the country or it be the people that were previously, you know, in the ruling class, but are now being neglected. You know, like everyone can feel outcast in that sense um, and unwelcome to the main group. Um, you know, how does all this talk about like elites sort of like criticizing the common people? Um, the common people are feeling displaced and they're not they don't feel like it's a neutral space. So I think there's ways for us to work on that. Um And the last one is sort of a meta point it's sort of trying to wrap up the whole thing which is to rather than reject reality um, reject that the world is like this just like accept that you know we have our problems no one's no one's perfect we all have a you know a a thread of between good and evil that goes between us um none of us can be perfectly one or the other and we have to get into the fray regardless with people that are imperfect because we too are imperfect we don't need to use purity tests to like test loyalty um, but rather get it, get sort of working on the problems and start, you know, getting um, making progress on that stuff instead of trying to just make sure that the whole world is perfect before you agree to go touch it. You don't have to wait for politics to be completely revamped to become a politician. You don't have to wait for you know, the tech industry to be completely revamped. You don't have to wait for any industry to be fixed before you go in and try to help make it better.
0: Yeah, so the the first point that you've talked about there, I suppose, with cancel culture and um, blockades around particular rallies or speeches, where they, uh, one of my ex-podcast guests and a friend, Alex, who's at the University of Oxford, uh, Steve Bannon was going to go and talk, and some students had just blocked the street. They were like, "No, no, you can't go. You can't go listen to him. We're not going to let anyone through to listen to him." Right? And you're like, "Well, I mean, if his ideas are that bad." you should be able to say at the Q&A at the end, just zinger the hell out of him, make him look a fool. But right. it's easier, it's easier to just try and shut down the argument entirely. But <clears throat> bizarrely, it always, it almost always seems to work against people. You know, Ben Shapiro needs like 14 security guards with him whenever he goes to go speak on campus and all this sort right. of stuff. Uh, yes, and then, yeah, yeah the, with the, with your final point there, the, the, fact that you need to accept the world as it is i'm finding that mechanism appear in so many different areas of life at the moment um mm. and as a good piece of advice for anyone who's listening if you are continuing to come up against the same problem you know that the world shouldn't be that way but it continues to manifest it's like sorry but the world isn't changing as fast as you wanted to <laughs> and you yeah. just you just need to account for that so we say it all the time with the with the managers or with some of the staff that work for us or whatever it might be, we wish that they would be sufficiently autonomous with X task that we don't need to remind them. But after three weeks of them not doing it, when we don't tell them, despite the fact that we scheduled for them to do it, you're like, I, that. this is just a thing where the world is the way it is. And I'm going to have to send them a message on the morning <laughs> that reminds them to do the X task or the Y right. task or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. And that, that, that appears to be rolling forward for everything because we want the world to just, happen right we want it to be this autonomous right. beast where we do the work once and it just scales beautifully as this like evergreen uh, utopia just right, rolls right we have out all these like,
1: expectations us. we don't want it to you know we have an expectation and when it doesn't line up that um makes us a little bit anxious um and so we can either decide like okay well there's something broken over there i'm gonna stay away from it you should fix yourself or we can help develop that and help them improve um and get involved ourselves but um yeah it is a hard instinct to overcome um it's very tempting to um want to just hide the problems over there and say hey you're, you got a problem go fix it mm. um versus being the part of the of the solution
0: i suppose that manifests as one of the as the third option that you spoke about earlier on which is just the exit the conversation mm-hmm. thing as well right it's like, oh well, look, like this is this is just pointless. I'm not even gonna bother, not even gonna bother engaging. Yeah, like, well, right. I mean, if there's one surefire way of, in, of making uh, certain that the world's not going to change, it's doing that. Um, exactly. Yeah. So to wrap up, if you were to give the people that are listening your one favorite single uh, heuristic or rule or piece of advice when it comes yeah. to having a uh, productive disagreement. What would it be?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the the overall um, desire that I would sort of want to plant in people's heads is that we can get better at this. Like we can become you know one percent, five percent, ten percent better at disagreeing productively. Um, and the only way we can do that is by practicing. So find the arguments out there that you know the disagreements that you're avoiding currently. Um, and one that's within like the, the the skill level, not too hard, not too easy. Um, you know, especially at first, if you don't know where you are on that scale, um, practice it and intentionally try to get better This is a This is like going to the gym, right? This is how we get along with each other is a skill we need to develop in ourselves because once we develop it in ourselves, we can feel it in ourselves. We can sort of remember what it's like. We can expect others to also have that. And I think that's one of the only ways we can enact change in the world is to expect our leaders to be better expect our you know the people above us to to be Better, but we can only expect that of them once we know what it is ourselves Um, And so, you know, I think we can start there to begin and you know, once once you get hooked on it I think you know, you'll you'll find every conversation to be like a little Adventure that you know, it's it's gonna you don't know where it's gonna go It's gonna be it's gonna be unpredictable because you're no longer just guard railing it or trying to shut it down Um, and it leads to really interesting things. It's highly rewarding. So, um, I just, you know, I hope people turn this into a practice. It's, it's, uh,
0: that's my goal. I like it. I think we've, we've used a a really lovely framework today. It's certainly something that I think will challenge a lot of people. They've got a lot of biases to overcome, visceral responses to things, emotion, the ego, all the, the, the things that manifest themselves, burble and pop inside of our brains. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, you know, like I say, go, go and have a conversation, have a long conversation with people. Have a think about what we've spoken yeah, about. What a today.
1: podcast. Do, <laughs> start your own podcasts.
0: podcast. <laughs> Honestly, I'm telling you. Well, the, yeah. stu- the, the stupid yeah. thing now is that you can do an IG live, a dual IG live with someone else. So I'm actually going to start doing this for the podcast. I'm going to do, um, just a weekly 15 minute chat with someone else. It's not, not as structured, not published on any of the platforms, but it'll just exist. But you can, anyone can do that. Everyone got some form of social media. And you're like, okay, well, so what was it that, that Chris and Buster said? Oh, I need the, I need the external accountability of someone else that's going, that's going to be listening to hold me to like high level of rigor and blah, blah. There you go. Like, right. you know, just press, press a button, press go live button and get one of your friends to join you. And you know, that, that might, yeah. that might uh, nourish the, the particular um, thing. Um, so yeah. why are we yelling? The art of productive disagreement will be linked in the show notes below. And it's at Buster on Twitter. I mean, that's the advantage of being one of the first guys on Twitter, isn't it? When you get to get yeah, at Buster.
1: Yep, yep, yep. I, love <laughs> I had at Instagram too, but then I accidentally canceled the account. Oh, well, no way.
0: But, yeah. You had at Instagram?
1: Yeah, yeah. But, you oh, know, that's a little sloppy. <laughs>
0: so, you, could have hel- you could have held them to such a ransom for that. Or just used it to shamelessly promote your own book.
1: Exactly, yeah. <laughs>
0: Well. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, if there are uh, any other places, are you mostly on Twitter? Is that where it's best to find you?
1: Mostly on Twitter. I, yeah, I have a blog at BusterBenson.com. I'm on Medium at Buster as well. Um, so, but Twitter is really the, the best place to start. Um, and I'm open, you know, any at mentions will we'll get replies. So I just like to talk to
0: people fantastic well as i've said everything that we've spoken about will be in the show notes below of course why we're yelling the art of productive disagreement is linked and as always if you follow that link you'll be supporting this podcast at no extra expense to yourself if you enjoyed this episode go follow buster online hassle him he's got a great handle on uh on twitter like share (laughs) subscribe you know all of that good stuff but for now thanks very much buster it's been awesome man
1: it's been great thank you so much